Welcome to the Sacred Goals Podcast, where you'll learn how to hit your sacred goal by destroying patriarchy and trauma-related neural pathways in your brain. These techniques have helped my clients double their income, finally fall in love, and easily land their dream job. Let's go. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Trauma-Informed Witch Podcast which the name might be switching very soon. So stay tuned for that. (laughs) New uh, exciting news. I am very excited to be here today with Kristen Stove King, who was my coach and will be my coach again very, very, very soon. And who's an amazing badass and who is gonna talk to us today about bankruptcy, and money mindset and how to change your relationship with money mindset or your relationship with money if you want to do that, if that's something you're working on. So Kristen, why don't you start by introducing yourself, telling us a little bit, who, a little bit more about who you are and what you do. Thanks, Bryn. Um, yes, hi, my name is Kristen Scove King. I go by Kristen or KK. I live in Colorado and I am a life coach for women who want to give fewer fucks. I have 10 year old twins and an awesome husband and two really wild dogs. And I live in America's highest city up in the Rockies at 10,200 feet. So some fun facts about KK. I love it. So fun. And I said your name wrong. It's Scove. I said Scove. Scove. Oh yeah, that happens a lot. It's scove. It's like stove, but with a K instead of a T. Got it. Scove. <laughs> where? What's the? What's? Where is that name from? It's Danish. Scove, oh. or or they might actually say it scove, but I'm pretty sure they say it scove. It means like forest. Like Ooh. my my family back in the day were like uh, they had like like tree nurseries. I don't know what the correct term is. Is that the right term? Tree nurseries. Sure. Um. Yeah. So. <laughs> So my grandparents were born here, but their parents were not. Amazing. Yeah. So it makes sense that you live in the Rockies. You live in the the trees. It's all coming together. (laughs) So it feels like very personal to start with this, but we're going to do it. We're going to talk about bankruptcy right away. So maybe tell everyone a little bit about what led up to you filing for bankruptcy? Like what was happening in your life and why did you make that decision? Yeah, so we filed for bankruptcy in um, 2012 and the my twins were like 11 months old, I think when they were 10 or 11 months old when the bankruptcy was discharged. And that's a relevant detail because my pregnancy with them was like the precipitating event that pushed us into that situation. I had a, an, un, well, I wouldn't say unusual, but a, a fairly uncommon and not well understood pregnancy complication called hyperemesis gravidarum. And basically hyperemesis is unrelenting morning sickness 24 seven for an indefinite period of time. And by the time I found out that I was pregnant, I knew really early, I knew when I was like four weeks along um, and I was really sure it was twins, like very early. 
And shortly after we confirmed that at about six weeks, I became very ill. And between six weeks and nine weeks, I had lost 20 pounds and I was completely incapacitated. It was like, it was insane. And people kept saying things like, have you tried ginger ale? And I'm like, no, what a great idea. It never occurred to me to try ginger ale. Thank you for your medical expertise. It was a very frustrating experience. Yeah. Um, So it took a while to get, excuse me, to get a diagnosis and also to get appropriate treatment. Through the course of my pregnancy, I was hospitalized like five or six times. Um, I was completely unable to work for a year. I had a a pick line inserted into my arm, which is like a, like a permanent port, like a chemo port. Um, Mm. So they don't have to keep sticking you because I couldn't eat. And so they had to give me liquid nutrition and liquid medications. I had like pumps that I had to stick all over my body. Um, and I had to give myself like injections in my stomach. It was like, I, I got like a real quick, like crash course in home health because mm-hmm. I had to administer all these things to myself. Um, so as you can imagine, it was very difficult for me to do anything other than like not die. Um, which felt like pretty touching babies alive. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I couldn't, I couldn't eat. I couldn't move. Like it was just, everything was horrible. It was, it was really bad. Um, Mm. and so I went on long-term disability, which did make up a part of my salary, but it wasn't enough to cover all of our expenses because my husband was significantly less able to work because he had to take care of me and schlep Mm. me into all of these different doctor's appointments and like manage all of this care. So between me being on disability and only getting like, I I think it was about 60% of my income and him being down about 50% because he had to give up so much work to care for me. We just, we just couldn't make it work. And Mm -hmm. so we explored our options to try to figure out, you know, like what, what can we do here? Um, How can we make this right? Cause it wasn't that we didn't like it wasn't that we like didn't want to pay our bills. We just literally couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first thing we tried to do is we tried to, you know, negotiate with everybody. Um, like we, we were able to like, you know, pay the electric bill, you know, that kind of stuff. But we tried to negotiate with like the mortgage, with like the credit cards, with the different things and say, look, this is our situation. Here's documentation. Can mm-hmm. we reduce our payments, like tack them on the end so mm-hmm. we can we can make this all work? And they were like, no. (laughs) Interesting. I mean, that was like pretty much it. Like it was just, it wasn't even on the table. Um, and I don't really understand why, because that seemed, I mean, to me, it seemed like a good idea. I still, you know, I found the whole thing very strange. Um, but at the end of the day, they, you know, they weren't willing to negotiate with us. And so we had a friend who had been in a similar situation a couple years earlier where they just, they didn't really have a lot of options and they were unable to negotiate. And so they had pursued bankruptcy and I was like, I will do anything but bankruptcy. I was like, Mm. I had so much shame and stigma around it. Um, I was raised in a home where like my basic needs were met, but there was not extra money. And like, we take money very seriously. We take debt very seriously. We take credit very seriously. Like everything about money was very serious very scary and very Mm. shameful. And that Mm. wasn't the intention, but that was like how I received it. And so the idea of filing for bankruptcy felt like it felt so shameful. It felt like such a a personal failure. And I also didn't really like understand what it actually meant 
to file for bankruptcy, right? Like I didn't, I didn't know what the process was. And frankly, I still don't really know what the process is. I just had the lawyer do it and it was fine. Um, But like, I was, I, you know, I was sort of under the impression that we were going to have to like sell all of our stuff and like use the money to pay what we could. And then for the rest of eternity, we'd have like a big, like scarlet B on our chests or something like that. And <laughs> so, so like, like you have to get like a permanent tattoo on your face. Yeah, like or I have something. to have like a facial facial tattoo that would be like failure, right? Like <laughs> Right. Right. That's like how it had always been presented to me. And like I was like, oh well that's a real life ruiner. Like I guess, you know, if we have no other options, it was a good run until we hit like 30 and now we're fucked, right? Like that was kind of mm. how mm. how I thought it. Um and so you know, to, to a lesser extent, a little bit of that was true. Like it does stay, I don't know how it is in other places, but in the U S it like stays on your credit report for a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. So there's like a, I guess like a a gray B on your credit report, but it's not Mm -hmm. like a red one tattooed on your face. Right. Um, but like, we didn't, we didn't actually have to sell all of our stuff. I was like, how much money can I get for my wedding ring? And what bill could that pay? But like, we didn't actually have to do that. We Mm -hmm. did have to like, document our assets to make sure we didn't have like a bank account in the Caymans or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But that was really it. And so the process was very stressful, but it wasn't because the process was stressful. It was because I had a lot of stress about the process. The process was actually super simple. Like our attorney was awesome. He like specialized in bankruptcy and he was like not very far away from us. And so, you know, all things considered, it went pretty well, but it took me like seven years to like emotionally recover Mm. from that and to like forgive myself for the things that I thought I did wrong that caused me to do this like horrible shameful thing Mm. and like it wasn't until I got like kind of to the other side of that process that I realized how many people I know who've who've filed bankruptcy who've gone through this who've had these like wild unanticipated things happen in their lives and they've been making themselves wrong for it ever since and I'm like, no, we're not, we're not going to do that anymore. And that's why I like to, you know, to speak freely about the experience because shit happens, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and like, are there things we could have done? Like, yeah, probably we could have been, you know, socking away one full income just in case. But like, mm-hmm. even if we had, it probably still wouldn't have been enough to live on for an entire year with all of these medical expenses and two babies and like all this stuff, like, you know, it, we could have done things differently, but I'm not sure it would have changed anything. And it doesn't really matter because shit happens and you just, mm-hmm. you don't know. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I was talking to Serena Hicks about when she was on the podcast was that how debt shame, which I think bankruptcy shame falls into the mm-hmm. <laughs> the bucket of debt shame is, is a classism thing. Like, totally. you know, if you were from a, whatever they call it, legacy family or like a family that someone in your family could just bail you out or chose to, mm-hmm. wanted to bail you out, you wouldn't have filed for bankruptcy. And, or if someone, if you had an inheritance or there's all these different situations mm-hmm. and that wasn't the case. And so this is, this was the best option given the circumstance, but it's just so interesting that to me, I, I like had like a brain orgasm when I was talking to Serena. Cause I was like, 
oh, if you buy a sweater and you put it on credit, you're like not thoughtful and all, you know, there's all this stigma around like shopping mm -hmm. using like consumer credit. It's like mortgages are fine, but like any kind of consumer debt is like horrible. But it's like, yeah, if you come from a rich family and you buy a sweater, you're good. No one shames you for that or there's much, much less shame. And then there's all these things like mixed in with it, right? Like women uh, are painted as shopaholics in the media when um, it's called like obsessive buying disorder. Or, that's not the right mm -hmm. word, but there's like a technical term, but it's basically if you look at it across gender, it's like, it's basically the same. It's mm -hmm. like 6% for everyone. 6% of people have that behavior regardless of gender. But in the media, we only see one gender over shopping. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's just like, there's all this stigma. But as you said, it's like, it's actually it probably was like a great option. Like, looking back at it now, it sounds like what a great idea. You were so smart and resourceful to do that. Yeah. But at the time, you were like, I'm a garbage human. Yeah, I was like, I really fucked this up. And there is no coming back from this for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life, I'm gonna like have this failure. And and the truth is, the system was not set up for me to have other options. And like I, so like, I, I don't, um, come from a, a background of like intergenerational wealth, but despite that, when we were in the situation, we were trying to figure out our options. My mom, who like is a house cleaner, like gave us thousands of dollars to try to like delay mm. the inevitable. And mm. she was willing to keep doing that, but I wasn't willing to keep throwing like good money after bad and a completely untenable situation. Right. And once the, like the, the biggest one that was like particularly upsetting for me was the, the mortgage. Um, once they were like, look, either you pay in full and you stay on track hundred percent by such and such a date or your, your house we're foreclosing on you. And right. once they just said like, we're not willing to work with you. And this is the deal. I was like, mom, don't, don't give me any more money. Like if we need like food or like baby formula or something, and like, we can't pay for it, I'll call you. But like, let, like, I don't, I don't want to keep, if they're going to kick us out, no matter what, because <laughs> they're unwilling yeah. to negotiate, like, I'm not going to keep paying. And so I let them know we'll be vacating the premises on such and such a date. Um, you know, please plan accordingly. Also like, fuck you. This is completely preventable. I don't know why you're doing this. Um, and, and you know, that was like really frustrating, but they're like, we just didn't have other options. Like we tried to do all the things that they say to do, where you negotiate with your creditors and all this stuff. And like, they, they just weren't willing to do that. And, and I don't fully understand why it doesn't really matter. Like it ended up working out. Okay. Right. Obviously like I'm here, I'm fine. But, um, but it, you know, it was really, it was really troubling because like we are responsible people. Like I had a salary job. My husband had a successful business. We had a beautiful home. Like we were doing all the things we weren't like, I mean, no one, no one deserves to go through that. But like, I had this, this idea that like bankruptcy is for like irresponsible people who didn't want to like right. take care of the promises that they made. And like, that's right. just not, that's just not how it was. So yeah, it was like the only option available to us to do it like, like legally, like we could have just walked away and not filed bankruptcy, but that would have been worse. Right. Cause there could have yeah. been liens and seizures and you know, all this stuff. 
but yeah. yeah, we just didn't have a lot of choices. So like first, I'm for sure glad we did that one, but I wish we hadn't had to. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it does get like, when the bank says no, or certain people say no, you know, and you like try to, I've had it with like trying to get a bigger line of credit and they're just like, no. And then you're like, okay, why? Like, what do I need to change mm -hmm. to change the situation? And it's so hard to get information sometimes. And there's no, you know, there's no negotiation. And I think there's also, I've heard multiple people say this, and I imagine there's research on this if we would dig for it. But just even as a woman, again, trying to get a loan, you're less likely to get a business loan. I, I think I did look it up for some. Yeah, that's, that's pretty well point. documented. But I don't I don't remember the details. But I do know yeah. that like, as recently as like, shortly, I mean, you're you're a little bit younger than me, but like shortly before we were born, like our moms couldn't get like a, a credit card without a man co-signing, yeah. right? Like they didn't have access to credit. Yeah. They, um, they, women continue to receive like less available credit and like higher interest rates than men. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's just so many places where the system is really, you know, stacked against women. And we were all raised by women who grew up in that Believing environment. That. Yeah. And right. that being their reality. Yeah. 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 So and, we're kind of taught you got to people please to get money. That was definitely one of my yes, the message. And you have I to got. be like perfectly responsible. Yeah. You have to spend every penny exactly the right way. It all has to be accounted for. There can't be any frivolity. There can't be any impulsivity. You have to show that you're not a hysterical woman. You yes. have to be an emotionless robot who will only do it the right way, or you can't have it. Right. Yeah. And like we, we, and there's so many places where we could apply that same set of criteria beyond money, but like, that is a huge one. And when women um, file for bankruptcy or make financial missteps or lose on an investment or something, they're judged much more harshly than men are. And so it really has created this, um, I don't even know like what the right number is. I was going to say like a double bind, but it's not a double bind. It's like a triple or quadruple, quadruple or whatever. Like the number just keeps getting higher of all of the ways we're kind of, you know, twisted around right. this. Right. Because we're socialized to believe you're not going to have any money and you're not going to have access to credit. And then we are. And then that is also fact to yeah. a degree, even today. Yeah. So it's like all of these layers and it's like, yeah, no wonder we sometimes have fucked up money mindset. <laughs> Seriously. So, so I want to brag about where you are now. So I don't okay. know if you want, if you're willing to say your numbers or just give people a sense, but you're in a different financial situation than 2012. So I want to Brag, and then let's talk about how you got from 2012 to where you are now. 
Yeah, because I, I think the how we got from there to here is really, really important. But let's yeah. let's start with bragging. So, you know, we're so that people keep listening because they're going to be like, damn, they're gonna be like, this is depressing as fuck. This is not helpful <laughs> at all. OK, well, there's a happy ending, guys. Well, like a happy middle, because like we're not near the end yet. We're still in the process. But so I went from that scenario where I was basically kicked out of my house and facing the possibility of being homeless with two infants because you know, financial systems suck. Um, to now in the last three months, I generated $120,000 in my business. Ooh. It's actually, I've had, um, I've had two additional people sign since the last time we talked about it. So it's now like 140. Um, and yes. I had an $80,000 month in February. We're recording this at the end of March. I know I'm like, what the fuck? It's so like, I totally did it. And also I'm like, I can't believe I did that. And also I'm like, I can totally believe I did that because look at me. I know myself. I'm very capable of these things. Yes. But I still, you know, I do still have some like, um, I think it's actually fair to call it PTSD. I don't like to throw around you know, diagnostic um, terms lightly, but, but the, the experience of like having lost everything with no options is like legitimately traumatizing. Yeah. And so when it comes to money, I still, I'm like, oh my God, every dollar is going to be the last dollar I make. So I have to be responsible with it. Mm. But now I catch myself when I'm doing it and I give myself permission to accept the risks and make conscious choices that are not based in fear which is huge because I was scared of money for like, I mean, like kind of my whole life, but like for the first like eight years after bankruptcy, I was just so terrified that I was going to fuck it up. And like this weekend I went and bought new clothes because my clothes didn't fit. I have some like health conditions where my weight kind of fluctuates Mm -hmm. and I had clothing for sizes that are not my current size, but I didn't Mm -hmm. have clothes for the size that I am. And I caught myself like hoarding resources, even though I have a lot of resources at my disposal. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm allowed to spend the money that I earned that I know how to create on anything I want. And I'm allowed to spend it on clothes that fit that I feel amazing in. And so I went shopping and guess what? I put the sweater on a credit card because I get rewards from my credit card. And I like to do it that way and I can do whatever the fuck I want because I'm a grown ass adult and I get to decide. Right. So like, it's a big shift <laughs> from where yeah. I was. It's a big shift from where I was. And right, you know, right before that happened in October, I left a very lucrative job. Um, I had a, a six figure corporate position on a, you know, director level track. I, you know, I was, I was set if I wanted to stay there, like they would have kept me forever. And I quit because I wanted to do something different. And that was a really scary thing for me to do. But I had to remind myself that just because something happened before doesn't mean it happens again. And if it happens again, that doesn't mean anything about me either. Right. Yeah. Like that was, that was huge. And now here I am a couple months later, you know, had an 80 K Crushing month. Like, it. What's the, what the crap, it. man? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So everyone wants to know now, how the fuck did you did that? Do that. How did you go or, and, and we don't like, what are the lessons that you learned that other people could apply? I mean, you can tell your story too, but like, we want it to be applicable to people who maybe are in debt or have filed for bankruptcy or might file for bankruptcy or just aren't even anywhere near where that needs to be an option, but they aren't happy with 
the, the amount of money, their money situation. Yeah, so I think there were a couple of um, key decisions that we made and and some of them were like externalized decisions, but like the, the big stuff that happened was on the inside, like how we decided we were gonna handle it. Yeah. So um, so I, I really was concerned that there was gonna be um, a period of time where we like didn't have anywhere to live. We were literally gonna be like living in our car with infants and dogs and, and cats. Um, and so when it occurred to me that that was a possibility, the first thing I did was just cover my bases. And I reached out to people to say, Hey, I'm in a difficult situation. And if my family and I need a place to go for a little while, are you willing to be one of those options? And so we, we came up with two backup plans and we went with one of those two. The first backup plan was that I, we lived in Virginia at the time and my mom lived in New Jersey in the house that I grew up in. And so after she had, you know, helped us financially to try to get this situation turned around, she agreed that she would be willing to, you know, let us come and move in with her, the whole family, all the animals and everything until we could, you know, get, get stuff sorted out and get back on our own. Cause one of the things that happens when you, um, you know, when you file bankruptcy is that it then becomes very difficult for you to get like a lease, right? right. Because you're considered a risk. And Your so it's hard to get a lease down. Exactly. Yeah. It, it plummets. Um, and you can't get a home loan for a certain period of time. So we didn't have a lot of options in terms of like renting somewhere. So we went to the people that we had. And so we had some friends who were like, we will, you know, like, we'll figure it out. We'll take care of you if you need a, a couple of days, a couple of weeks to make your next step. So we had that lined up like locally, but we reached out to my mom and she was willing. And then we also reached out to my mother-in-law, who's a fucking saint. I like, I won the mother-in-law lottery. I have two. I have my husband's bio mom and his stepmom, And they're both oh, cool. like angels from heaven. Like, oh my God, they're incredible. Um, and so his bio mom, my, my mother-in-law, um, had a rental house and her person, um, was there, the lease was going to be ending soon. And so she said that she would rent to us and we could rent her house when the lease ended. Now, the way the timing worked out was such that, um, we, we were going to have a big gap. And so she made the decision to offer her tenant the, to buy out their lease and yeah. to, you know, give them like all their deposit back, buy out their lease, like give, give them a bunch of cash to get them out of the house so we could get into the house. And we decided to accept that offer and the tenant decided to accept that offer. And so uh, everyone sort of worked together to get us into this situation at a rate that we could afford in a place where we didn't need to have, you know, a credit check or anything. Mm-hmm, and although mm-hmm. it was not a place that we wanted to live, it was in central Florida, which is lovely. If you like Florida, I don't have <laughs> to like Florida very much. I don't like the heat. I don't like the humidity. Um, but we made the decision to ask for help. We made the decision to accept the help. And we made the decision to take steps to move in the direction that we wanted to go, even if that step wasn't necessarily one that we would have preferred. I would not have preferred living in Florida for four and a half years, but I made the decision that I was going to do this because it served my longer term goals. And I didn't need to be like a perfectionist about how that was going to look. I could just make it work. And so that's what we did. I mean, that was like really, really huge. Um, So let me pause there. Do you have any like questions or comments before I share additional lessons? (laughs) You're doing great. No, this is perfect. Keep going. Awesome. 
so then once we got there, we took a little bit of time to like regroup and recover. Like with my salary, um, it, we were able to cover, cover all of our living expenses. It was considerably less expensive there than the cost of living where we came from. We, we lived in Northern Virginia previously, which is not a cheap place to live, like between like Richmond and Washington, DC. It's, it's mm. pretty pricey. Um, so where we lived in Florida, the cost of living was about a third. And so we made the decision for my husband to stay home with the kids for a while while we kind of got oriented and figured out what we needed. And we decided to just delay any big financial decisions and just, just exist for a little bit. And mm -hmm. so we took a break and gave ourselves time to like process a little bit. And I don't, I don't remember exactly how long we did that, but we kind of like recovered from like the initial shell shock and like got settled and started like making friends and stuff. Um, and, and talking to those people about what had brought us there. We decided we didn't want to hide it and we didn't want to like lie about it. Um, mm. And it's not like we were like, Hey everybody, I'm Kristen. I just want to let you know I'm here because of bankruptcy. Right. But like when, <laughs> when like we were getting to know people, we like shared the experience with them. So we kind of got used to talking about it. And a lot of them had things to offer us in terms of like empathy or, you know, shared experiences or advice. Um, and through that, we learned about, um, we learned a lot of like financial management strategies because a lot of the folks who, who were in our network were people who had gone through similar things. And so we also decided that we were going to learn from whatever was available to us to help us create a sustainable structure that didn't feel scary and that felt really powerful. And by doing that, we were able to keep my husband home with the kids as long as he wanted to be. We were also able to completely pay off the only debt that we had that hadn't been discharged in the bankruptcy. And so like your, I don't know how it is in other places, but in the US, your taxes um, are not discharged. And so I had some, some taxes that were on a payment plan from my business um, that I had at the time. And so we got that paid off and I had um, student loans from my first master's degree that were not discharged. And so we got all of that paid off. We got like a nice little nest egg so we could start to give ourselves some more options. And we just threw everything that we could into that. Um, and that really took a lot of the pressure off. Sometimes people will do that in a way where they're like, I never eat out. I never have coffee. I only wear handy nouns. And like, if that works for them, that's great. For us, we'd already been like punished so much by ourselves that we didn't want anything to feel punitive, but we were just very careful about the choices that we made to make sure that they felt really good and empowered rather than something we had to do or something we were like coerced into doing. Like we wanted it to all feel good and we wanted to be like proud of the decisions that we made, including I'm going to buy a new bathing suit. We're going to like go get a hotel room for the weekend while your mom watches the kids, you know, like stuff like that. So we could like live our lives. Um, so I think yeah. one of the things people do is they have like so much shame that they're like, I must pay for this forever emotionally and financially. Right. And like, we were really careful about not doing that to ourselves. And it gave us a little bit more freedom to actually like exist while we were kind of getting our feet back under ours. And I think this is a really important point because when something is punitive or feels horrible, you're doing it in this way, it's very hard for it to be sustainable. Either you feel like crap and sometimes it leads to burnout 
Mm -hmm. Or sometimes what happens is you're like really good and you're really tight and your ship is really tight for six months and then you like lose it. Yeah. <laughs> and just spend a bunch of money in the other direction because you have felt so punished or constrained. So I think, you know, sometimes people talk about this with like dieting, right? It's like, you don't want to mm -hmm. eat like food that you hate, <laughs> but you want to find, find food that you love that works for your body mm -hmm. and, and have something where it's not like, because I think the other thing is to be mindful about money. It's like, that's a skill you want to keep forever. And it might change slightly as your income changes, right? Like mm -hmm. you, you, the weekend away at the hotel might turn into a family vacation somewhere at a certain point if your income allows. But to have this kind of relationship with money, it's like it's your mm -hmm. relationship with money where it's like, yes, I'm not going to spend it on every single thing that I want and every idea that pops in my head. <laughs> but when things are really important to me, like a weekend away with my husband, away from the kids and a fucking break, which all parents, <laughs> yeah, I encourage <laughs> that and figure it out. You know, if you can figure it out, even if it is, you know, staying at a friend's house while they're out of town and having your parents watch the kids or whatever. Mm -hmm. But that that allows for these habits to become long term when they're not punitive. I don't think punitive works for any whatever your goal is, whatever goal you're working towards, doing it in a way that's punitive, you you burn out or you quit at a certain yeah. point. Yeah, because it feels terrible. And so like, why would you want to keep doing something that feels awful? And like, there are absolutely things that we did early in the process because we were like consciously trying to develop specific habits that we don't do mm -hmm. to the same intensity or like the same frequency that we did at the time. Like we used to have monthly and weekly financial meetings together, me and my husband, and we'd like put the kids to bed. We'd like make a martini. We'd sit down at the, the kitchen table with like all of our, you know, numbers out. And like, we'd have conversations. We'd look at the budget and, you know, we did all this stuff we don't, we don't do that now. Like we certainly come together and discuss like big, you know, financial decisions. Um, but what that looks like for everybody is different. Like it used to be, if it was like, you know, over $50, we talk about it. Then it was like, if it was over a hundred dollars, we talk about it. Now, if it's like over like $500, we talk about it. If it's not, if it's something we've never discussed before, but like, if it's something we have discussed before, then we just sort of like do it and be like, Oh, Hey, by the way, I took care of that thing. Right. So like as our situation has changed, the way we've applied it has been different, but the concepts are the same. Like we actually have conversations. We have an active relationship with our finances um, and, and we really are intentional about the way that we use our money, which includes allowing some space for like frivolous, unintentional things. Right. Like I have like I've created enough of a buffer for myself that if I'm like at Target getting like new underwear for the kids and I see a sweater that I want, I could just buy the sweater, right? Like I don't have to think about it. I didn't have to budget for it. Like a, a bunch of our friends have these um, these sweaters with like big cats on the sleeves 
And I, I don't know if you've seen Serena and Melanie in theirs, but they, they're, oh, they're like from yeah, Amazon so. and they're like tigers and leopards and shit. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I, I saw, like, I always loved them, but I saw them enough times that I was like, fuck it. I want one. And I bought two. I bought one with two cats and I bought one with just one cat. And like, I didn't, you know, plan ahead for that for like 30 days. I was just like, you know what? I just want a fucking sweater. Like it's fine. So, and then I got two sweaters and they're amazing. And I love them and I wear them all the time. And I have no regrets about it because I knew I wanted to do that. And I had created a situation for myself where I had the space to do it. So I don't have to feel guilty. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to lie about it. I don't have to like shame myself for it. Like I can, I can just do that. But it took practice to get there and to know my limits and to like feel into, um, I don't know what the right like term is, but like how we were talking about sort of like compulsive buying like sort of like my dopamine response to things. Like I've tuned mm. into that and I'm like, mm-hmm. do I really need like this pair of pants in five colors just because it fits and I like them? Or like, can I just get it in two colors? Right. So like I've, I've gotten to like know myself a lot better through the process of sort of like trial and error. And I've gotten to know my husband a lot better through that process. And like, I've deepened my relationships, like, especially with my mother-in-law um, by like having the, um, humility, I guess, to like, be just very transparent with her about what was going on and like, ask for her, her help and take her help. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, she continues to be just a wonderful advisor to us in so many areas of our lives, but this is absolutely one of them. And it's been just beautiful to be surrounded in the support. And if we had stayed just heavily into that place of shame, I, I don't think we would have had access to that. And I don't think that we would have gone on now after we spent four and a half years in Florida, we moved to like our dream home in the mountains here in Colorado. And one of the other things that we allowed ourselves to do in this healing process is we allowed ourselves to dream and to Mm. have ideas and to be excited about the possibility that like something else was available for us. And like our life wasn't like over because of bankruptcy. This was just like one And like, because of foreclosure, like this was just one thing that happened, but it's not like the thing that defines my life. Right. And that, that took some time to like come around to, um, but like we, you know, we did things like we, we visited this place before we moved here. It's a beautiful town called Leadville. Um, I can't remember if I said the town before, but it's called Leadville and they're very, um, famous for their hundred mile mountain bike race and their hundred mile running race, like foot race. And they have um, other races of different distances, but that's what they're known for. And my husband became a competitive endurance cyclist after we moved to Florida. And he like lost a hundred pounds and became this like incredible athlete, does like Ironmans and shit. And he wanted to do this race. And because we had given ourselves permission and set up this structure, we were able for him to come out here and do this race. And, and his mom supported us with childcare to make that work. And we fell in love with this town. And so we made a plan to move here and we like figured out the finances and we figured out like what kind of like home loans we could get with a bankruptcy. And we found realtors who could help us and lenders who could help us. And so we built this like army of support for us to get the things that we want in our life. And I don't know that we ever would have done that if we hadn't gone through this experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's so important. And I think with shame, you know, Brené Brown's research on shame, 
shame thrives on secrets, secrecy and silence. And so when you don't tell anyone about a bankruptcy or whatever your, maybe the debt you have now, whatever struggle you're in, it, it grows basically. But when you tell it to people who are safe, so we're not talking about necessarily putting it all out on Facebook, especially if something is fresh. I don't mm-hmm. recommend it. <laughs> Definitely not co-signed. <laughs> but to talk to people who you trust or even, you know, people who you're meeting and you're getting to know and you're building trust with mm-hmm. about money, about debt, about whatever you're struggling with. Because what kills shame is empathy. Yeah. So, yeah, and whether it's a therapist or a friend or a family member who you feel like can hold this and isn't going to say, you're such a fucking piece of shit, you know, that's what we (laughs) don't want to happen, especially when something is fresh. You can maybe handle it later once you've built yourself back up and, you know, it's like now you're sharing this on a podcast. It's a very public forum, Mm -hmm. but it's been 10 years, (laughs) so it's like you probably wouldn't want to be doing this episode like three months after the fact. Yeah. No, and now if someone <laughs> is, now if someone's like you loser, low life, whatever, you probably will be able to let that roll off your back. Yeah. And I think that's really, I think that's a really important point. Cause the truth is like, it's not, I know that for a lot of people, it really does feel shameful. And I was one of those people but the truth is, it's really nothing to be ashamed of. Like this happens to a lot of people. Medical bills are like, if they're not the top reason, they're like one of the top two reasons that people file Probably like businesses maybe failing and medical bills, yeah. I imagine. Yeah, I think that's right. Now, the thing is, for us, it wasn't the actual medical bills that were the problem because we did have insurance and that was like largely covered because I was in a job that provided benefits for me. So that wasn't it, but it was the inability to generate income because of a medical crisis. Yeah. Right. Which is, is, you know, like a a thing that happens to people, you know, people get cancer, like all, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. They have horrible accidents, like weird things happen, right? Like we just, we don't, we don't know, but like that can literally happen to anyone. And one real gift, there've been a lot of gifts to bankruptcy Hmm. and foreclosure that I, I did not anticipate when I was going on and that continue to surprise me even 10 years later. But one of the real gifts of it is that there it's like a real filter for the people I want in my life. Mm. Right. Anyone who like learns this thing about me, this very relatable thing that happens to so many people and thinks badly of me. I'm like, Hey, thanks for the heads up. We're good. Bye. Like, <laughs> right. And there it, it's happened so little, but it is such a gift to know that you're not a person who I can count on to be in my corner. And so like, yeah, I mean, like we see each other out to dinner or something or like, well, the kid, you know, the kids are at the playground. We can like hang out and chat, but like, you're not someone that I'm going to like invest a lot of time in because I know you're not someone who's going to have my back when I need it. And because of that, I'm not going to want to have your back. I mean, like, yeah. if you're, like, choking, I'm going to, like, give you the Heimlich. But, like, right. we're, like I'm probably not going to, like, make you dinner for a week afterward, right? Like, that's just not the relationship we're going to have. 
And so it's, it's really helped me to sort of assess like how people are about stuff and get a sense of, of shared values and shared level of empathy and like mutual respect and acceptance of, of people's life experiences when I meet people and have conversations with them about it. And, and I do want to reiterate, there have been very few people who have had any reaction right. other than, wow, that must have been really hard for you. Thanks for right. telling me. Like very few people. And that was one of my biggest fears is that people wouldn't mm-hmm. take me seriously anymore. Right. <laughs> that's like a, that's like a, an old wound is that like, I won't right. be taken seriously. So I used this as a thing to be like, well, people aren't going to take you seriously. So your life is over, but that hasn't been the case. And I've actually found that it's deep in my relationship with a lot of people, um, that people have respect for like the comeback or whatever, Yeah. right. That there, there's a lot of like really beautiful stuff there that has created really positive, powerful impacts in my life. Um, that I, you know, again, I don't, I don't know what happened if we hadn't gone through that experience. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I just want to reiterate, I think that if people are shaming people about bankruptcy, it's a form of classism. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. I I think it's an acceptable form of classism or an unseen way that classism, you know, runs through our society, Mm -hmm. but it is. Yeah. Because it's a choice and sometimes it's the right it's the best option. It's the right move. And yeah. But yeah. Well, and, and like even the terms we use to describe it, I, I haven't listened to your episode with Serena yet. So I don't know if you guys talked about this, but just the, the words that we use, like when we talk about like white businessmen investing, we talk about like leverage and we talk about investment. And when we talk about women using credit or, you know, getting, getting loans, having credit cards, whatever, we talk about debt and, and we, and, and there's nothing particularly charged about the word debt. Like it is factually like the, the denotation of the word is factually accurate, but the connotation of the word is very shameful. And we use it specifically to shame women, to shame people of a lower social class, to shame people of color, to make them wrong for doing it. Whereas for the the dominant like white male experience, mm-hmm. we're like, oh, what a smart investor that he's leveraging right. these things. And, and it's just really treated differently. So it's, it's a symptom as well as <laughs> a problem right? That we do that, but it's a symptom of this larger issue. And classism is absolutely at the heart of it. Um, I'd say misogyny and patriarchy are absolutely at the heart of it. And racism is at the heart of it. And, and, and these are really complex issues that a lot of us have been so, um, like steeped in the impact of them that we're not consciously aware of it the way like fish don't know they're wet. And so when it, when it comes up and when we're in that situation, We've internalized a lot of these things because they're all we've ever really known. And it creates this deeper sense of shame and isolation and limitation around it that's like added by the social constructs of it. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's totally right. It's intersectionality, right? All of those Mm -hmm. things play together. And I, yeah. And I think so much of it, I think so much classes, I don't know. It's like, 
It's so great that we're having, you know, awakening after awakening about feminism and racism. And I think classism, we need to keep having, you know, there is there, uh -huh. there, it, there at this point when we're recording this 2022, it doesn't seem like there's a national conversation or an international conversation about classism and uh -huh. the impact of that. And so I think that's, well, that's why we're talking about it here. Yeah. Well, and, and not to go like too far afield. Um, so bring mm -hmm. me back after the statement. But I, but I think it also speaks to some of the gaps like in, in the US social safety network, for example, yeah. um, because in, in places where there is, for example, like universal basic income, you have significantly lower rates of homelessness. You have significantly lower rates of like dire financial crises. People have right. better overall physical health. They have better overall mental health. When things happen, there are systems and services in place to support them so it doesn't become a crisis. And in the U.S., that's like simply not the case. And now we we didn't go through this experience because we weren't being paid a living wage. So like I, I, I'm absolutely speaking on this from a place of privilege as a white woman who like had a salaried position, like I've always been compensated appropriately for my work. Um, but there are a lot of people who don't have that situation. And they're like, I think it's like 74% of Americans are like one paycheck away from financial ruin. And And wow. some of that is that, um, you know, wages haven't kept pace with inflation. Some of yeah. it is that housing costs have substantially inflated above, you know, many other costs. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into it. Um, but there's this narrative that like, if you don't have enough money, if you have this thing, it's because you didn't work hard enough. You weren't responsible enough. You were bad. You took advantage of the system. There's the whole trope of like the welfare queen. That's like not even fucking real, right? Yeah. Like there's, there's so much stuff that goes into it. And so it creates a, a game that's really unwinnable for the average person. And it also creates a lot of shame about not having won an unwinnable game. And right. even for right. people like us who were living in an extreme place of privilege, it still had that impact, right? right? And so for people who have fewer resources than we did, who don't have support, who didn't have a soft place to fall, right? Like th there are people who never come back from this. That's why once you've had one bankruptcy, you're more likely to have a second and a third and a fourth because you, you can't get out of the system because it's not designed for people to get out of it. Hmm. And like, and that's not a personal failing. That's just a feature yes. of the system. <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. 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 There's so <laughs> There's so much work to do. There's so much work to do. Yeah. But that's part of the reason I think it's important if you are someone who cares about these issues, I want to support you to build wealth. Because I think sometimes we think that if I have more money, then it is going to be super hard on the people of a lower class. But that's not how it works. Usually, <laughs> I was just writing a post about this. It's like, yeah, if you sell heroin to unhoused people, and that's how you make your money, you are taking money from like the most marginalized group. Like there are certain, mm -hmm. yeah, jobs that are ways of making money. Or if you decide to steal from people in low income housing, and that's your income stream. Yes, you are taking from the most marginalized group, 
but most of us, the way that we're making our money, it's, it's, that's not the direct impact. And when you steward more money, you get to decide where it goes. So you get to decide, you know, when Melanie was on, she was talking about how some of her money goes to trying to get certain political candidates elected so that they uh -huh. can change some of these policies you were talking about. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a really important segue because one of the things that also goes along with these systems and these perspectives, particularly the gendered ones, are that if you're going to have money, you have to do the right things with it, mm. right? So like you can't have money just to have money. You mm. can't have money just to have fun and have your life be easy and be able to like buy a new sweater anytime you want. It's mm -hmm. like you have to do the right things with your money. And, and I believe in doing that, right? Like I believe mm -hmm. in like when, you, when you're in a position of privilege, when you're in a position of power, I believe that we have a, an ethical and moral obligation to do something to raise those who don't have that. And mm -hmm. so, yeah, absolutely. I use portions of my money to do that. Like I have a goal of being able to um, pay the mortgage at the domestic violence shelter in our town. Mm -hmm. I have cool. a goal of being able to buy a winter coat for every kid in my county every year. Like those are definitely things that I want to do with my money. And also I'm going to Europe for two weeks because I fucking want to. Right. right. So like I get to do that and I don't have to have a good enough reason right. to make the money, the money that I want to make because me making money is good for everyone. Even if it's just going on vacation, I'm stimulating the economy and the places that I'm going to. Right. I don't right. have to have some like higher purpose you do it, I can just go on vacation and like spend my money. And like, I'm allowed to do that. And also I'm allowed to pay off my mom's house and like provide therapy scholarships or pay the legal fees of black and brown people who are unfairly incarcerated. And right. I fully intend to do all of those things because I fucking want to, not because I have to. Right. Right. right? And that, I think that's another patriarchal um, point that I think women who have money are judged much more harsh. Women who have wealth are judged on how they use it. And I, you know, I see it in myself. I, I think who I was telling somebody this, but um, when Stacey Bayman bought her second Audi, I was like, that's not good for the environment. Whereas mm -hmm. like there are men who are wealthy, who have a lot of cars. And my immediate thought about them is they worked hard for the money and they love cars. And so of course they're going to have a car. So it's, yeah, we have to watch, yeah. <laughs> watch our minds on women who have money and how they use it. And when we're judging them and it, are we judging everyone the yeah. same? Because I don't think we are. I don't think we are either. And it's funny because I, you, um, you, you posted or did an email or something about that the other day. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you know what? I had the same reaction when I listened to her podcast episode about buying the car. I was like, bitch, why do you need another car? And, and I had to catch myself. And I was like, because she fucking wants one and it's her buddy and she can do whatever she wants with it. And meanwhile, yeah. I'm like driving my like 10 year old Subaru that like <laughs> there was like a bucket in the road and like my husband couldn't like avoid it because he was gonna like hit a person if he did so we ran over the bucket and the bumpers like on with duct tape right and I'm yeah. like Stacy shouldn't buy another car and I'm like no I should buy another car like what is right. happening here 
So like, right. Yeah. You get women doing these things. We get, we get to give ourselves permission and like, we get to see that, like, we're allowed to do that. So I'm like, I hope she gets another one. Right. Cause like I'm going to upgrade next year and I want some ideas. (laughs) (laughs) You need an Audi. I do, man. That's one of the ones I'm thinking about. So, um, but also like, not because like, I feel like I must be like responsible. Like I don't buy a car that's newer than four years old because I, cause they depreciate. Right. So I'm going to go buy like the nicest four-year-old Audi that has all of the features available four years ago. Right. Because that's just going to maintain its value. And I'm going to love the crap out of it. And it's going to be amazing. Not because I can't pay full price because I don't want to. Right. That's your right? choice. Those and are I get your to morals. Pick. And someone and Stacy wanted a brand new one. And that's amazing that she wanted yeah. the brand new one. And you want the four year old one. And that's amazing for you. And yeah, it's like <laughs> healing the patriarchy is like you women just doing what they want to do. It's like not about wearing makeup or not wearing makeup or shaving your legs or not shaving your legs or buying a new Audi or buying a used Audi. It's like you get to have your morals, your ethics, the way you want to live your life. Mm -hmm. And you just get to do that. And it's like, yeah, it seems so like silly that it's just like people, the humans just get to do what they want. But it's like that's. Like literally the point. Yes. Feminism is not about what you have to do. It's about that you get to choose. Right. Like I have friends who are stay at home moms and they have so much shame about it. And I'm like, girlfriend, you are not setting the movement back by choosing to stay home with your kids because that's what you want. Like, like that's amazing. Like, I don't want that. Like my, my kids are home all the time. I am also home all the time, but I am not, I am a mom who is at home. I am not a stay at home mom because I don't want that. And I thought for a long time that I did, my mom was a stay at home mom. She's fucking awesome at it. Right. Like she really like, she slayed it. And like, I'm not that person. I'm just not. And that's okay. And it doesn't make me a bad mom. It doesn't make me a bad whatever. And if you are that person, like I admire you. I don't have that in me. Like fucking good for you. I am so glad that you get to choose to do that and don't have to go to work or to to work in a way that's uncomfortable for you that you don't that you don't want to do because you get to pick to stay home. I'm so glad you have that option. I'm so glad that I don't have to. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. We and both it's get like, to pick. Yeah. Even with moms, it's like there's this idea of when you become a mother, then your like personality changes and you suddenly want to like decorate the nursery and like bake cookies and like make homemade Halloween costumes. And if that is you, that's amazing. Like if you were always the crafty (laughs) person and you love making your kids Halloween costumes, that's amazing. And if you were never the crafty person, you do not have to change who you are. Yeah. Just because you're now a parent, it's like you can buy that shit at Target or at some hand Etsy, wherever. Yeah. Yeah. You want to get it. And that's what I say to people all the time. I'm like, you, you can like pay people to do that shit, right? Like, you know, you can do, you don't have to do, you can pay if you want it done. You can just like pay somebody to do that. You don't have to be the person. So I'm like, I am not going to bake the cookies, but if there's a mom in my kid's class who loves baking cookies, I'll be like, Hey, can I kick you like 30 bucks and you bake us cookies too? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. (laughs) 
So good. Yeah. In yeah. Shonda Rhimes' book, Year of Yes, she says, like, at one of her kids' schools, she was at some PTA-type meeting, and the president or whatever was saying, like, we don't want any pink bakery boxes. Like, we only want homemade. And she said, she said out loud, like, she just, like, her filter was, was uh, not very strong that day, and she was just like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> to the whole PTA. And then, you know, was mortified and all oh, the man. things. But it's like, I love yeah. her. <laughs> it's like, if you love baking, that's awesome. And Shonda makes pretty kick-ass TV shows. And she doesn't love to bake. Yeah. Or maybe she likes it, but she doesn't have time. <laughs> And like, that is okay. Okay, we're over time. I have to wrap it up. Right. I have to rein us in. Do it. <laughs> we could talk. We, we could talk forever. We'll have to do another episode at some point because I think we could talk for like two more hours about this. <laughs> but if people want, well, any last wisdom you want to share about bankruptcy debt, and then if if people want to stay connected with you, learn about working with you, all of those things, where can they find you? Um, okay, so final wisdom. Um, money is a tool, not a club to beat yourself with. And yes. so any place that you're using money against yourself, I want to invite you to give yourself permission to stop doing that. And including debt, right? Including debt. So if it's money you have, money you don't have, money you owe, money you're owed, stop using it against yourself. Give, write yourself a permission slip to stop doing that and see mm -hmm. what happens. Because when you stop making it wrong and when you stop making yourself wrong in relation to it, it gives you a lot more freedom to actually make decisions and have your life be the way that you want it to be. So that's, yeah. that's my wisdom. Um, and if you'd like to stay in touch with me, uh, the two best ways to do it are on Facebook. I am Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-E-N, Scove, S-K-O-V-E, King on both Facebook and Instagram, but I'm more active on Facebook. Um, and you can also find me on my website. It's Kristen King, K-R-I-S-T-E-N King.com. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for coming on and for being so vulnerable and, you know, sharing about this so candidly about this experience that I know was difficult at the time and now is like an awesome gift <laughs> that happened to you but um yeah I think it's really going to help a lot of people thank so you thank I you hope so coming. thanks for having me <laughs> yeah. okay bye everybody if you resonated with this episode I want to offer you a free private one-hour consultation with me through doing the deep inner work, my clients have been able to do things like quit the job they hate and land a job they love, or get their first paying clients in their dream business, and if they're a little bit further down the road, double their revenue. They've been able to fall in love and go to bed each night feeling satisfied and accomplished. In the consultation, we'll talk about what your dream looks like, what's getting in the way, and whether working together can help. Email me at brin at brinbamber.com to book.